Whether you're a general contractor, flooring specialist, or renovation expert, you want to get your job done quickly with the right product and at the right price. With over a million square feet of in-stock tile, wood, and stone under one roof, Floor & Decor has the options of pro wants at everyday low prices. Plus, they have the tools and services you need to save you time and money. Visit flooranddecor.com to find the location nearest you. Navy Federal is proud to serve more than 8 million members, including active duty military, the DOD veterans, and their families. You'll receive a lifetime of membership benefits with Navy Federal, and you can easily access accounts, transfer money, pay bills, and deposit checks with the Navy Federal mobile app. Visit NavyFederal.org slash MLB for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message data rates may apply. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. I hope you enjoyed your Labor Day, but now that we're back, if you know the baseball calendar at all, that means it's crunch time and crunch time can only call for one guest, Zach Cram. All right, we're going to kick off the show as we do always with Zach Cram. Zach, welcome. Hello. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Bobby Wagner's AL Cy Young pick, as he was just crowing about as we were getting ready to record. Uh, the Houston Astros have uh, had a good weekend. Uh, Justin Verlander threw a no-hitter uh, over the weekend, the third of his career, 14 strikeouts, one walk, and then the next day, Garrett Cole struck out 14 in just six innings uh, of work. Um, that's a lot of strikeouts. I guess we'll just start start with that. The Astros are good. Who knew? We're in year two of Garrett Cole being the world-destroying power pitcher that he was promised to be coming out of UCLA. After flashing that for years and years in Pittsburgh, he's really put it together. He led the American League in strikeouts per nine. Uh, He is striking out 13.6 batters per nine innings this year, uh, which would at least tickle the all-time record. I don't know where he is uh, in relation to to the actual all-time record for a starting pitcher, uh, but he's going to challenge it, particularly if he strikes out 14 guys in six innings again. Um, I don't really know what what to make of of this starting rotation. With the two of them, with Zach Greinke in the the fold now, I guess Wade Miley is probably your your number four starter in the playoffs, the way things are shaking out right now. Um, Is there any particular like macro level lesson you take from from what we've seen or you know just looking back whether it's this weekend or the entire season well so even more than strikeouts per nine i like to look at strikeout percentage as a statistic which is basically just the percentage of batters you face how many of them do you strike out and the all-time record before the season was 37.5 from pedro martinez in 1999 and garrett cole right now is at 38.7 percent so he, if the season ended today, would set the all-time record. That, uh, just to put it in reference, that's an elite reliever number. Like Edwin Diaz's career strikeout number is 38.7%. That's a higher career rate than someone like Ken- Kenley Jansen or Andrew Miller. So this is, if anything, go- going underappreciated. I think it's a little bit early to talk about the- what the Astros rotation like means in a broader sense of the term just because we don't know how the playoffs will shake out. I'm writing about the Nationals for tomorrow, and one of the things I'm looking at is basically the history of 
elite starting rotations that have failed in the playoffs. A lot of them have from recent uh, Indians rotations to the 2011 Phillies uh, to a lot of the mid-90s Braves teams. Sure, they won one World Series, but with that rotation, you might have expected them to win more. Uh, A team like the 2014 Tigers I'm looking at, they were swept in the first round by the Baltimore Orioles, despite having in game one, Max Scherzer against Chris Tillman. In game two, Justin Verlander versus Wei In Chen. In game three, David Price versus Bud Norris. So like, it's perfectly conceivable that the Astros could lose in the first round of the playoffs. Even with these starters, it's just the whole rest of the team is so good too that it, it's almost like having Granky and having this version of Garrett Cole is just cherry and cherry and cherry on top of what was already a delicious Sunday. That 2014 Tigers rotation, it's going to... It's going to go underappreciated because that was like the one bad Verlander year and Price wasn't there that long and uh, Scherzer left, I think, after that season. But they had four Cy Young winners in in that rotation at the same time, plus Anibal Sanchez, plus uh, Drew Smiley, in, who was – this is going to be hard to believe, but Drew Smiley was good once upon a time. Um, like you said, it is the rest of the team. And uh, this is the difference, I guess, between them and like the 2011 Phillies or maybe some of those latter-day Braves teams, uh, is I just look at that. I don't. The rotation isn't so much better than the Nationals or the Dodgers that I'm shooing, or even, you know, even you look at Cleveland, what they could throw out there uh, with, if, uh, if with Carrasco back and Shane Bieber, Clevenger, and Corey Kluber is still on the, on the mend, but if he gets back to full strength before the playoffs, like, that's not that much worse than what the, uh, what the Astros have. It's the combination of that and that offense, that that lineup that is just so deep top to bottom that I find myself uh, getting irrationally, like I know that there's like a mathematical limit to how big a, a favorite a team can be for the World Series going into the playoffs. And I find myself having to remind myself of that uh, every time I think of, of the way this Astros rotation and the lineup set up. And to be fair, there is something romantic about, you know, even caveats and historical comparisons aside, there's something romantic about anticipating October and having a rotation because teams are using bullpens more aggressively now and the dynamic of October pitching has changed. But when you think about October, you still like having someone like Verlander who pitched a complete game in the ALCS against the Yankees a couple years ago. And just being able to enter October with Verlander and Cole, who by my money are the two best pitchers in the American League right now, is just an advantage both on the mound and sort of narratively. And I think that can't be overlooked. Your point about the lineup is true because I think the Yankees lineup is similar to the Astros, uh, especially if players like Aaron Hicks and John Carlos Stanton are able to return by the end of the season. But then even with the Yankees bullpen, you look and it's like, okay, Masahiro Tanaka versus Verlander, you give Verlander the advantage. And then Paxson versus Cole, as much as I have made my affection for James Paxson known on this podcast, Cole has the advantage there. And then Zach Granke has the advantage in game three. And it's just an uphill battle to even match Houston inning for inning uh, for basically any team until the World Series. And I think that's where the advantage comes in is that there are ways that Houston can advance even if things go wrong. But if you're the Yankees or the Twins or one of the wildcard teams in the AL, you basically need everything to get right 
everything to go right. And then you still might only be a 50-50 shot to advance against Houston. Right. And you think about, you know, the the way this always seems to to work out is that team that looks like the the gigantic favorite coming into the to the postseason just it almost always seems to find a banana peel to slip on. Um, you know, you look at that the 2011 NLDS, the Phillies Cardinals one, you know, it was just the Phillies just didn't play that well and didn't get any breaks. And, you know, they wind up, they wind up losing to, uh, to the eventual world series champions, you know, this sort of unfancied wildcard team that, that got right in, you know, got into the playoffs on the last day of the season. And, you know, it's the a club like the 2016 Cubs is that, looked like the heavy favorite from the start and ended up winning the, you know, obviously that was an all-time classic World Series and they had to come back from 3-1 down to win it. Um, but even that kind of performance or the or last year's Red Sox is not that common. And so, you know, if it's it's easy to get fixated on uh, on one club and then, you know, you just forget that the Dodgers are out there that the Yankees have this incredible line that the, the twins for that matter have this incredible lineup. And so it's, you know, it's not going to be easy. I, it, but so yeah, to your point though, about uh, the fact that, that at least Houston and Cleveland and Washington are set up to have like that old school pitcher stool, you know, like I certainly there's no normative difference uh, between, between doing that and stringing together a bullpen game or just, uh, completely making everything up uh, as you go along, like last year's Red Sox did, or the the Giants in 20, uh, uh, 2014. Um, but there is something romantic about that that standout starting pitching performance. And, you know, we got that with Game Three of the World Series last year with with Walker Bueller on one end and Nathan Eovaldi on the other. Like there is something heroic about that. Um, when a pitcher really steps up in the way that Verlander did two years ago, for instance, or Corey Kluber did the year before that. And so I'm looking forward to to that in the postseason. By the way, Bobby chimed in. He said uh, the K-9 record is 13.4 by Randy Johnson in 2001, and he wants us to mention that uh, he predicted in his midseason projections that Cole would break that record. So he's already taken a victory lap on that one. Well, the other thing I'd say to your point is that Historically, yes, a lot of the elite teams have fallen, particularly in the wildcard era when there are just more teams to navigate through and more rounds. But in recent years, the good teams have been winning. The Red Sox were the best regular season team last year, and they won the World Series. In 2017, the Astros and Dodgers were the 200-win teams. They went to the World Series in 2016. The Cubs were the best team and won. So I don't know if that means anything now that we're in an era where the best teams seem better than before, or if it's just kind of a fluke anyway. I think what it means is is there's at least in the past three years that there's not just one of those teams every year, that it's two or three of them at a time. And so by necessity, only one can win. Uh, You know, the 104 win Dodgers were not that far out in front of uh, uh, the Indians who blew a 2-0 lead in the first round last year or the Astros team that eventually beat him. You know, certainly not in terms of of record. You know, maybe on paper they looked better because it did sort of feel like an upset when the Astros beat the Dodgers in the World Series. But you, know, you just look at, at how deep Houston is and, you know, how much less deep is, how much less deep are the Dodgers? You know, how, how much less deep than the Dodgers are the Nationals? You know, so you 
you get you wind up getting two or three of these teams at a time, and I think they wind up knocking each other out. And so maybe it's less that than sort of slipping on the banana peel the way the 1990s Braves seem to every year. I'm just running a, a play in search as we were talking uh, because your point about pitchers duels inspired me. So this decade, I searched, you could quibble with my parameters maybe, but I searched in the playoffs when both starting pitchers went at least seven innings and gave up no more than two runs. I figure that's a, a fair proxy for a pitcher's duel. There have only been 10 this decade. And the previous decade, it looks like there were 18. In the 90s, it looked like there were 23. So there are only half as many postseason pitcher's duels now as there used to be, which, again, fits with all these trends we're talking about. But it certainly would be nice to see like a Shane Bieber versus Justin Verlander playoff duel, for instance, would be a classic example of the young pitcher who's just finding his place in the league and could be a future star against the old guy who has been a star for a while. Uh, Even Verlander, I think his no-hitter this weekend was a nice encapsulation of kind of the different phases of his career. I don't think we've mentioned yet. It was his third no-hitter. He became the fifth pitcher in the ALNL era, uh, so not counting a guy who did it in the 1800s. To that was a real least. baseball. You don't have to count right. those guys. Yeah, sorry, so old it, Haas. Nolan Ryan had seven. Sandy Koufax had four, and now Verlander, Bob Feller, and Cy Young had three. And Verlander's three no hitters, I think, each came at a different point in his career. He threw one in 2007 when he had just run won the Rookie of the Year. He had just pitched for a team that made the World Series. the The world was open to him. Then he threw on in in 2011, which was his best season. He won the MVP that year. I think he won 24 games. And then he went through some tumultuous times. He was bad for a bit. Then he was traded. And now he's amazing again, throwing his third no-hitter. So it's nice to see that kind of career progression pointed out through the storyline. That is nice when when the narrative all sorts of all sort of falls into place. There will probably be a book to be written to, on uh, on Justin Verlander using those three no hitters as a framing device or something. Um, here the, I just nar- ga- I just okay. gave away a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> and the narrative is important. Looking forward to October because as much as I and presumably most of the baseball watching public like watching the games just to see who wins and to see awesome pitchers compete against awesome hitters, it is partly about what kind of narrative you can build out of it. And when you can build a strong one, it, it makes, I think, the month of October all the more magical. And the fact that we have these these anchors to work and to bring those narratives through the month is, is an important one as we anticipate the month to come. All right. I think that's a good place to to pause. Uh, we, I'm sure we'll talk about the the Astros again. We'll talk about Colin Verlander again and narrative and so forth. But uh, uh, I think uh, we'll leave it there for this week. Until next time. It's hard to believe summer is almost in the rearview mirror, but as vacation season wraps up and you fall back in your normal routine, here's an opportunity to get stuff done with LegalZoom. Right now, LegalZoom's making it easier to say so long to summer by saving you 10% off the things you need to accomplish. For all you entrepreneurs that haven't set up an LLC, DBA, or S-Corp for your business, now's the time to save money. And if you've been meaning to wrap up your last will or living trust, but can't seem to find the time, take a moment to do the right thing for your family. And if you get confused or have questions, don't let that slow you down. LegalZoom isn't a law firm, but their network of independent attorneys and tax professionals can give you the advice you need to make the right decisions. Save 10% for a limited time on the things you 
you've been meaning to do with LegalZoom. Just go to LegalZoom.com right now and use code MLB at checkout. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. All right, I'm very excited for uh, my next guest, which is not to say that I'm not excited for every guest, but I've been looking forward to to the segment for for a while. Um, I guess I will just introduce my next guest uh, and then sort of explain what we're going to do. So it's my pleasure uh, to welcome Jacob Pomeranke to the show. He is the director of editorial content for the Society of American Baseball Research, uh, more commonly known as Sabre. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I guess the the short way of, of doing it or of, of explaining this is uh, this this year nineteen nine or two thousand nineteen is the hundredth anniversary of the Black Sox scandal, and uh, Jacob, you know more about this than I know about any baseball topic, and uh, you've written extensively and talked extensively about this. So I wanted to have you on for a little chat before we get too close to the playoffs, um, and sort of you know go through you know you had this. Uh, uh, the series, the eight myths out series to sort of debunk a lot of the mythology, because this is like one of baseball's great historical literary events that, you know, it's, it's obviously spawned several films and, and numerous books and, and so on. And so I'm, you know, I'm curious what like attracted you to the topic, I guess, first of all. Well, you know, like, like many other people over the last uh, 50 years or so, I, I read the book eight men out when I was a kid. And just kind of, uh, you know, got enthralled with this story of, of these players that fixed the World Series in 1919. And, you know, I wanted to learn more. I, I you know, read that book and I was actually left with more questions than answers. Um, and I wanted to know more about the people involved, the White Sox players who threw the World Series, the gamblers, um, all the other secondary characters that are, you know, just really written in such a dramatic and a compelling way. And so I just, I, you know, I started digging in and I, uh, I joined Sabre when I was in high school as, as a member and um, started digging in and finding other people who were interested. And the more that I learned about the Black Sox scandal, the more I realized um, how much we didn't know and, and how much we had all grown up believing um, that that turned out not to be true. And so over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, we have you know, continually just uh, chipped away at, at some of the myths that have grown up about the Black Sox scandal. And um, now that it's the 100th anniversary, we're kind of shining this bright spotlight on, you know, what we call baseball's darkest hour, the biggest scandal in baseball history. And, um, you know, what we've learned is kind of turned the story on its head. It's a very different story than the one we all grew up believing in even now. Yeah, and it's so much of the popular knowledge about this story is based on not just Eight Men Out, but Field of Dreams, and you know, so much of of Field of Dreams in particular is just it's mythology. Yeah, and, and I think that there's a um, a valued place for that in in sort of baseball folklore because I think baseball does have a, a folklore in a way that other sports maybe don't. Um, but that's that sort of has obscured the truth, and you know, I'm just. What I find most interesting about this is how pervasive the gambling problem in baseball was in sort of the early 20th century. You know, Hal Chase is another uh, example of of uh, players who who threw games. You know, there was the the Ty Cobb Tris speaker uh, uh, accusations. Um, so, like this, that's really striking that this was just such a pervasive problem. The way that we might have thought about PEDs uh, at the end of the last century. And this was just sort of the inciting incident um, that really led baseball to to take a long look at it. And so, you know, I I guess uh, uh, curious your your take on on that sort of historical context. One of the one of the bigger myths 
that surrounds the Black Sox scandal is that this was kind of a loss of innocence uh, for baseball. You know, it's kind of the single, the original sin of baseball that, uh, you know, the Black Sox kind of uh, corrupted the game in a way that, that no one ever had done before. And um, the reality is far different. You know, as long as there has been baseball, there has been betting on baseball. Um, as long as people have been invested in the outcome of a game, um, you know, there have been people who are interested in manipulating that outcome and, and whether that's through fixing a game or whether that's through, you know, other means of, of cheating or anything else. Um, there have been people that are interested in, in kind of getting that type of an edge. And, and that's, uh, you know, not exactly the same with what happened with throwing the games and losing games on purpose. Um, but again, it goes back to this idea that baseball is, has never been pure. Um, the game that the Black Sox were playing was um, very different than we think of today um, in terms of the culture of baseball. It was it was accepted to bet on uh, baseball games back in 1919 and, and for years earlier. Um, you know, what Pete Rose was accused of doing uh, in the 1980s, betting on his own team that he was managing, um, was something that was happening all over baseball uh, before the Black Sox scandal. And there were, you know, reserved sections for gamblers um, at Fenway Park, at Wrigley Field, at other ballparks. Um, you know, and, and so gambling was uh, an accepted culture, uh, cultural part of baseball um, at this time. And so the Black Sox scandal did not come out of nowhere. Um, this was something that had been going on for many years. Games had been fixed. Uh, game, you know, people had been bribed. The players had been bribed by their own teammates, including Hal Chase, uh, the most corrupt player in baseball history. And so this was the era that the Black Sox scandal happened in. And I, I think it's impossible to understand the Black Sox scandal without understanding the context of, of when it happened. And this whole idea of, of uh, you know, being able to bet on, you know, anything that moved on the field. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about what's going on uh, with 2019 with, you know, sports betting being legalized and Major League Baseball kind of getting back into that game. Um, well, this is what was happening in 1919. You know, you could place a bet on what the next pitch would be, a strike or a ball, whether the batter would make a hit or an out. Um, this was something that, you know, happened in 1919, and you could go to the ballpark and do that. You know, in-game uh, betting kiosk at Wrigley Field, which is a story that came up earlier this summer, um, that might be happening in Chicago. Well, you know, that could happen in 1919. Um, the technology wasn't the same. You couldn't do it on a smartphone in 1919. Uh, but you could bet on baseball um, very easily a uh, hundred years ago, and so that was you know part of the culture of the game, and this is the culture that led to the Black Sox scandal in 1919. I mean, sometimes maybe societal rot is too grandiose a way to put it, but you know every every like underlying problem with with baseball or sports, you know it there's the inclination to ignore it until it gets to a point where you can't anymore. And obviously, throwing the World Series is it's uh, just uh, just so far beyond the pale that baseball can't ignore it. Was it just that, or is there something else that made this the flashpoint uh, to for baseball to really start paying attention to it? Well, I think that was the uh, the probably the most obvious point was that you know throwing a World Series is very very different than throwing a game in the final week of the regular season, which uh, two Hall of Famers, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, were accused of doing just a week before the 1919 World Series began. Um, they fixed the Tigers-Indians game at the end of September uh, in 1919. And so that, that story didn't come out until a few years later. Um, so it, it was the, the spotlight of the World Series that um, really made baseball wake up and realize, oh, we, we really have to deal with this problem now. Um, and it was also, you know, a, 
1919 was after World War One, and so it was the start of this reform era, um, both you know within the game and also at society in society at large uh, in America. You've got prohibition being enacted at this time. Um, you've got kind of this wave of reform candidates who are elected uh, to office, uh, both locally and nationally. Um, in Chicago and elsewhere. And so you, you've got a different era of of what was accepted in 1919 and beyond than you did before 1919. Um, before 1919, it was uh, much more corrupt. And, you know, what was accepted, what was swept under the rug by baseball officials um, was, you know, much, much greater uh, in scope. And after 1919, after the World Series ended, um, I, I don't think the uh, Black Sox players could have recognize that baseball would have changed its tune because before 1919, um, they didn't do anything about the game fixing. They didn't do anything about bribery um, or any of the other corruption that was going on in the game. They just swept everything under the rug. And Hal Chase is kind of the poster child for that. He was bribing teammates left and right on the Cincinnati Reds, um, the team that he was, the, the, the White Sox faced in the World Series and the team that Hal Chase was the first baseman for um, before 1919. And he was bribing his own teammates, bribing opponents, uh, and then he moved on to the New York Giants, and he was doing the same in 1919. And so, you know, baseball didn't do anything about that. He was caught red-handed bribing his own teammates, and, and baseball gave him a slap on the wrist and allowed him to move on to the Giants. And I think the White Sox players kind of saw this and, and realized that, you know, even if they got caught fixing the World Series, um, nothing was going to happen to them. Baseball was not going to take this seriously because they never had done so before. And, you know, I, th- I think they did not quite realize that uh, – the mood in the country had changed and the mood for reform um, had grown stronger. And I don't think they realized that, that baseball was finally going to take this problem seriously and finally going to do something about it. What's what in your mind is, is like the, the biggest misconception that you uh, feel like needs to be corrected, or maybe there's just something that that's outside the public narrative that, that like when you're talking about this with people who've maybe only seen field of dreams or something like that. Well, this was kind of the goal of our Eight Myths Out project that we published uh, at Saber.org earlier this spring, and just kind of bringing to people's attention all the different misconceptions that surround the Black Sox scandal. And and again, what we grew up learning through Eight Men Out um, and and the story that we were told through that book and through the film uh, 25 years later, you know, I think um, recognizing that there's a lot more to that story. It's a lot deeper um, than what we grew up believing about the underpaid White Sox. They were poorly treated by Charles Comiskey, the White Sox owner. Um, you know, that's the story we all grew up with. And, and the reality is very, very different. Um, and it turns out that we actually have a lot of new evidence about the Black Sox scandal, including contract cards. We have accurate salary information for the first time, thanks to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And so we've been able to piece together the story and, and figure out, oh, yeah, the Black Sox players were not underpaid. Um, they were actually paid pretty well uh, in baseball, even though it was the reserve clause era and all salaries were a little bit suppressed uh, for many years. You know, the White Sox were actually paid pretty well comparatively um, to their peers in baseball. And so this idea that Charles Comiskey was kind of the supervillain of the story, that he was the one who drove the White Sox players um, to fixing the World Series, that they really had no choice because they were making, you know, peons wages. Uh, in baseball, you know, this is kind of the central thesis of eight men out is that this is the reason why they threw the world series. Um, and there, it couldn't be further from the truth because again, we have accurate salary information that now shows 
that the White Sox were among the highest paid teams in baseball and, and including some of the Black Sox players like Eddie Seacott, the ace pitcher. You know, he was the second highest paid pitcher in baseball behind Walter Johnson, the great Hall of Famer. Um, so, you know, this was not the reason that they threw the World Series. It was a very complicated uh, case and, you know, getting into their motivations, trying to get into the players' heads into why they threw the World Series. Well, we'll probably never be able to do that, but we can definitively say it really wasn't because of their low salaries in baseball because, you know, if, if they had reason to throw the World Series because of their low salaries, well, then so did players from every other team in baseball, too. So that really wasn't the reason. And I'd say that's probably the number one uh, myth that we've been trying to dispel this year. And so that does raise the obvious question. And I know, you know, we will we don't know their their true motivations, but not only just looking at your eight minutes out page, the first two have to do with the pay with uh, the White Sox pay. And the third one is that Seacott and Chick Gandle were actually the ones who who hatched the who approached the the gamblers with the idea to throw the World Series. And so this is just such a sinister, you know, just it's beyond the pale from from what you would think of in terms of, of how you'd expect athletes to, to compete. So, you know, do you have any, I don't know, just even the ability to make an educated guess on, on how, you know, eight members of the, the pennant winning team all came together to, to, uh, to attempt this. Well, you know, I think the first thing to understand is that this was a culture. They grew up in a culture where betting on your own games was not only allowed, but sometimes encouraged. Um, certainly at the amateur level, this was something that was very, very common was, um, you know, if, if you uh, were knew that you were better than the you know team in the neighboring town, you know, you would definitely place the money in order to make a little extra money on that game. Um, and, and rising up through the through the game, through the professional ranks, um, you know, players betting on their own games was an extremely common thing. And so I think it's you have to understand, I guess, how casual it was for uh, gamblers to be around baseball players at this time. Um, you know, they associated with, with ball players in the, you know, on road trips, in the hotels, on the trains, traveling from town to town. Um, this was something where players and gamblers mixed pretty freely. Um, and baseball officials did too. This was something that nobody really uh, saw anything wrong with. And, and nobody seemed to recognize, um, I guess, the, the danger of, of what might happen if, you know, some gamblers uh, raised up enough money to, entice players to throw, you know, important games like the World Series. And so I think understanding that culture is is very important to understanding why the Black Sox scandal happened. And also realizing that baseball had never done anything to game fixers. You know, Hal Chase had um, had been caught red-handed uh, by his manager, Christy Mathewson, with the Cincinnati Reds, bribing his own teammates, and nothing happened to him. You know, he was allowed to move on. And Hal Chase had been a teammate of some of these White Sox players who threw the World Series. And you know, this this had been going on for years and years. Every year, it seemed like there were rumors that the World Series was fixed. Um, and so, you know, when it when the smoke started rising uh, in the 1919 World Series, that the series this series might be fixed too. Um, a lot of people didn't really think twice about it, and I think the players assumed that you know, even if they had been caught, that baseball wasn't going to do anything. They weren't going to punish them. And so I think there was this low risk, high reward sense among the players, even if they couldn't articulate that. Um, I think that was really kind of getting to the heart of, of their motivations. Um, you know, it was easy money. They were going to make as much money in a week as they might make all season uh, throwing these games. And the chance of them getting caught and or punished was 
you know, monumentally low. Uh, baseball was not going to do anything about this. They never had before. And so I think the White Sox players, you know, recognized this opportunity. And, you know, obviously some, some greed took over uh, in a way, as it always does. And, you know, they, they saw an opportunity uh, to throw the games and make some easy money and, and continue on with their baseball careers. And this was something that if it had happened in the final week of the regular season, you know, I don't think uh, anybody would have gotten punished for it. Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker certainly didn't uh, get much punishment for doing the exact same thing a week earlier. So I think that was really, uh, you know, getting to the heart of their motivations is they saw very little risk and they saw a high reward. And so they went for it. One thing that sticks out to me, and you mentioned the the Hal Chase, Christy Mathewson uh, dynamic in, uh, I guess it would have been Cincinnati at the time. Um, and there's, that gets written about a little bit with, Eddie Collins is always the the guy on the face of you know on the face of the anti Black Sox faction within within the White Sox that there's there is like a, a cultural difference between these like you know puritanical uh, you know often college educated you know there's probably a class difference uh, at play here you know I'm I'm curious like how that how that all works out you know in a in a big league clubhouse a hundred years ago because I imagine some of those divisions still are, well. I don't imagine some of those divisions absolutely do exist in, in major league clubhouses now, but not on the, on the question of like, should we try to lose the world series or not? You know, I, I think it's uh, interesting to consider um, which players today uh, might have been enticed to, uh, you know, go over the line and possibly fix a world. Oh, I don't think I can speculate while the, <laughs> like while the, uh, the recorders rolling, but if you want to do that after, <laughs> we hang up, that's- no, I, I would never do that. Uh, certainly not for public consumption, but you know, and, and again, I, I don't know that, um, baseball has changed a lot and I don't know that any players today would really be susceptible to that because, you know, how much can you bribe, uh, Clayton Kershaw or Justin Verlander to throw a game in the world series? You know, these guys are making, you know, upwards of $30 million a year. Um, you, you would have to bribe them an awful lot of money in order to make it worth their while. Whereas you'd probably have to black, the, uh, you know, Eddie, is the, is what you'd have to you do. You know, probably. and Eddie Seacott was making, um, about $8,000 a year, which again, made him one of the highest paid pitchers in baseball at the time. Um, but that was very easy for gamblers to come up with a $10,000 bribe, um, to double his annual salary. And you know, entice him to to throw games. So it's very it's a very different story today. Um, but uh, in terms of the players and and how they got along in the clubhouse, um, you know, there's actually uh, we're, we're digging into this idea that the White Sox were so torn by dissension that this was one of the root causes of the uh, the Black Sox scandal. It, it actually doesn't turn out to be uh, quite as true as as we all thought. Um, there were certainly divisions in that clubhouse, but there were divisions in every clubhouse. And, and there still are today. And so, um, you know, Chick Gandel went on record with Sports Illustrated uh, many years later in which he um, claimed that the reason that he recruited the players he did for the Black Sox scandal is because we hated them the least. Um, you know, and, and he wasn't particularly well-liked uh, in his own clubhouse, but uh, he was a very charismatic guy, um, similar to Hal Chase. And, uh, you know, the, again, the, the low risk and the high reward, I think, is the uh, the prevailing mantra for these players. It was it was easy money for them. Um, but yeah, I think uh, part of the reason they didn't approach someone like an Eddie Collins is because, you know, the, there were some class differences. There were certainly some personality differences. Um, Collins, you know, seemed like the type of player that would not go along with something like that. 
Um, but, you know, in fact, there's actually a, a story from a couple years earlier in which the White Sox players in 1917, they were fighting for the pennant. They raised a pool of money amongst themselves to pay off the Detroit Tigers pitchers um, to lose games to them. It was actually the Labor Day weekend series in 1917, uh, right in the middle of the pennant race. And the White Sox players paid off uh, Tigers pitchers, and Eddie Collins contributed to that uh, pot of money to pay off Tigers pitchers to throw games. Um, so Collins was was no saint, um, and so you know the, he, he had his price too. I think he was you know driven enough by winning a World Series that uh, he could probably never be enticed to throw games um, the way that some of the Black Sox were. Uh, but yeah, I mean everybody seemed to have their price, and this idea that the White Sox were the only team that were susceptible to bribes because, you know, either they were so poorly paid or they're so mistreated or so resentful um, that this was the only group of players that could have been enticed to throw games or throw World Series games. I think it's totally false. I think every team had a group of players that could have thrown a World Series. Um, They just didn't get the opportunity to at the right time like the White Sox did. All right. Well, this is uh, we could talk for hours and hours about this, but unfortunately, uh, we're out of time for this segment. So you've got a uh, research research symposium in Chicago uh, later this month that uh, I believe. So what what should people know about that if they're interested in learning more? You know, it's open to uh, everybody. We're organizing a a Black Sox Centennial Symposium at the Chicago History Museum. It'll be on September 28th um, at the end of this at the end of the month. And uh, anyone can come. So if you're interested, you can sign up uh, on the Sabre website. Tickets are just 20 bucks uh, to get in. And we'll have a lot of uh, panelists and, and research presentations about the Black Sox scandal and digging a lot deeper into this uh, whole story 100 years later. So I encourage everybody uh, who's interested in learning more to uh, come out to our symposium in Chicago. Like I said, I've been I've been wanting to have you on to talk about this for a while, and uh, I am glad you uh, agreed to come and chat because this has been awesome. So. Uh, Jacob Pomeranking from Sabre, thanks so much for, for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Mike. When you're looking for furniture, there's a lot to consider, like how you're going to get it in the door, how comfortable it'll be when the game goes to extra innings. Burrow is changing all of that with simple, adaptable, easy-to-move furniture that can be assembled and disassembled in just a few minutes. Plus, it ships to your door fast and free. Now, I've got a Burrow armchair and a Burrow love seat in my living room. Both of them took a combined half hour 40 minutes to put together they require no special tools they all lock together uh, using components in the sofa themselves it's very easy they're very stylish they're very clean and modernist in design uh they're they come in colors from blue to red i enjoy having you know sort of flashy red furniture in my living room uh and they are as they say comfortable when the game goes to extra innings now burrow's clever design features naturally scratch and stain resistant fabric plus sturdy hardwood frames and soft foam cushions there's even a built-in USB charger. Burrow is totally customizable, so you can pick one of the five fabric colors, three leg finishes, two armrest styles, any length, and you can even add a chaise lounge or ottoman. Plus, they just launched the Nomad Leather Collection, featuring their same convenient design with the option of top-grain Italian leather upholstery. Give your living room the upgrade it deserves with Burrow, the official sofa of the ringer. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. Hiring is challenging. 
but there's one place where you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash MLB. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And now my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, this last segment is going to be all about the youth and uh, here to discuss the youth with me is the most youthful person I know, Ben Lindbergh. Welcome to the 21st, my friend. I'm older than you, I think, only by a few months, right? But Zach Cram, he's the youthful one in this podcast. I mean, you're definitely going to outlive me if that's the... <laughs> I'm I'm young at heart. But yes, we have a lot of new youth, a lot of new names to know in baseball because rosters have expanded to 40 players for the final time. So we're feeling a little nostalgic, perhaps, about the end of the 40-man roster era and wanted to talk about some of the more notable names who have come up and what the 40-man roster era has meant to us and what it will mean to us that it's going away. It's uh it it is definitely a little bittersweet this discussion that uh that we're having. Um yeah, I uh I guess I guess we'll just start with a couple players who we're interested in seeing right now uh in this round of call-ups. I've got about half a dozen if we go through them quickly. I don't know how many you have, but and then we'll maybe we'll, we'll reflect on what the end of this this error means, uh, but one guy who's up already is Twins right-hander Brewster Gratterall. Yes. And uh, those of you who listened to Aaron Gleeman's appearance on this show several months ago uh, will remember this this uh, this name, or maybe not. We didn't talk about him that long, but he's a uh, he is a uh, a we'll call him cubicle cubicle <laughs> uh-huh. right-handed pitcher. And uh, yeah. those of you, you know. Everybody knows how much I love that body type in a pitcher, uh, but he hit 103.8 miles an hour in the minor leagues this year. He just turned 21. Uh, I think I am as excited about him as as I think a lot of people are about Michael Kopech, who hit 105 a couple years ago. Um, Brewster Gratterall is not uh, engaged to a CW star as Michael Kopech <laughs> is, but unlike Michael Kopech, he's going to pitch in. Well, he, he is pitching in the majors right now. Um, yeah, I, I think. The best thing about this is is how entirely like maybe like Jose Barrios was the watershed moment in the like the end of the old twins, like where mm-hmm. everybody threw 88 and uh, it was it was just all sinkers. But like this is a no doubt about it power pitcher. And it's fun to yes. see the twins. You know, the twins have developed a couple uh, of guys like that recently, certainly. But uh, ain't nobody more powerful than Brewster Gratterall right now. No, he came up and in his big league debut, he was routinely hitting 99. If you round up, he hit 100 a few times, and that's pretty much where he will be sitting and can get even higher than that, at least according to the minor league numbers that have been reported. So this is unusual for the Twins organizationally, or it has been historically, but everything about the Twins is different from what it has been in the past. In the Terry Ryan regime, of course, you did not have teams that were leading the majors in home runs and sitting the all-time 
home run record. And you didn't have young pitchers, for the most part, throwing this hard and being promoted this aggressively because he's a young guy and the Twins tended to be pretty conservative with their pitching prospects. And this is a new day and it's exciting. And it's always fun when a reliever comes up because there's some potential if he's been in the 40-man and there is someone on the 60-day IL and and you can potentially get that person onto the postseason roster. That always adds some intrigue to the September performance because you're seeing them and hoping that you might see something that could be exciting in the future. But if they really hit right away, then there's potential for them to turn into an October weapon too. So that's extra exciting. That's exactly what I was going to say. And I, you know, I think you and I both came of, of age as baseball fans in the time of K-Rod and Joel Zumaya and, yeah. uh, you know, the it seemed like every team had a 21 year old who uh, debuted on September 10th and, and ended up being a pivotal late inning reliever. Brandon Finnegan was maybe not as as spectacular as those guys, but he was a, a fun narrative in the 2014 postseason. Um, yeah, it's it, I, I think he ticks all the boxes as somebody who will be excited not only in September, but I imagine if he's even marginally competent he's going to be under strong consideration to to pitch important innings in the postseason yeah my favorite entry in that genre is the david price type who is actually a starter but comes up and pitches out of the bullpen just for his first exposure to the big leagues and he just dominates at times so that's like what the dodgers are trying to do with dustin may a bunch of teams have had success obviously bringing up guys who would go on to be top flight starters but the first time you see them maybe their innings are limited or you just want to ease their transition and so they come in and often they just look nasty right away and that's the most exciting thing i think when you have a top prospect and you know that maybe he's bound for a starting job long term now gratterall i think is is a reliever now he was a starter as all relievers were or most of them at least but he had tommy john surgery and he's had shoulder issues this season and he's been in the bullpen since he came back so i don't know if that's just a kind of trying to get him ready for october i I think it's probably more of that's how they view his long-term role just as kind of a smallish guy who's had injury problems and can be really dominating in that role but yeah that's that's the best when a guy comes out of the bullpen the first time you see him and is just firing triple digits and and pitches in big moments in October. So I do hope we see that. All right. Who's your, who are you looking forward to seeing? Well, I mean, the headliner of this month is Gavin Lux. I think he is the best prospect of the bunch. He's probably a, a top 10 prospect in baseball now after the season that he's had. And he, of course, is the Dodgers middle infielder who was just absolutely destroying AAA. He he did very well at AA, then he got a promotion to AAA and did even better. And that's even after accounting for the juiced ball and the crazy offense in AAA. He was hitting 392, 478, 719. That is really good in any league. And there is some question about whether he would come up and be on the active roster or whether he would just sort of follow the team around and get some seasoning, which I think Will Smith did last year. But Max Muncy's injury, his fractured wrist, opened up some playing time here. And so Lux started at second base in his debut. He's been playing second base at AAA. And the Dodgers have options. Obviously, they have Fernandez. They have Chris Taylor. They don't necessarily need Gavin Lux. But if Lux does well this month, if he hits as well as he was hitting, and he went two for five, I think, in his first game, then we actually could see him playing a a prominent role in October, depending on Muncy's health. So that's pretty exciting. 
Yeah, it wasn't too long ago that uh, Corey Seager was coming up for the first time around yeah. this time and ended up playing his way into the lineup for the the Dodgers postseason. Well, run is probably not the right word for it uh, <laughs> in 2015, but he definitely worked his way onto the onto the roster for that. So, yeah, yeah I think Lux is the obvious headliner. Uh, the Dodgers here. are just showing off this year. I mean, they're promoting 2016 draftees left and right, and some of them have been very successful. You've got Will Smith, who's been incredible, of course. You've got Tony Gonsolin, and you've got Dustin May, and now you have Gavin Lux. And it's just an embarrassment of riches because the Dodgers are so good already, and now they're just debuting what could be a pretty good core <laughs> for another contending team on top of everything else they had already. So in addition to shoring up the roster right now, it's like, when are the Dodgers ever not going to be good again? I have no idea. I, I wrote an article, I think it was like five years ago, maybe for Grantland, maybe more than that, about how will the Dodgers ever decline because they have the most money, they have the smart front office, they seem to hoard their prospects and develop them well. And that continues to be the case. They're just the best every year or very close to the best. And seeing all the young talent that's coming up, I don't know how that run will ever end or who will dethrone them. Yeah. And I mean, the key has really not been that. And this goes back to the point I always make about the Astros is like the key is not just having money and having the smart front office and developing prospects. It's turning guys like uh, like Chris Taylor and Max Muncy into stars. And yeah. I mean, for that matter, like Cody Bellinger was not this when they when mm-hmm. they drafted him, even when he came up as a uh, as a prospect. Um, and so that like that late stage development is really how they've been able to stay on top and stay on top so comprehensively with with no no end in sight. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, another guy who I think could make an impact is and is going to be far less spectacular. Uh, this is a little bit of a homer pick because I was on him early because he was in my coverage area when I was uh, covering college baseball is Sean Murphy, who was yeah. just called up by the Oakland yeah, Athletics. Yeah, he was a, a third round pick out of Wright State in 2016. Uh, Wright State is a, they are like not even a mid-major school, uh, but they have managed to uh, dominate the Horizon League Um through transfers and, and solid recruiting and stuff. And they've managed to develop a couple of like legitimate prospects uh, out of no talent base to speak of whatsoever. There are this tiny school with that's like essentially tacked on to Wright Patterson Air Force Base in, in Dayton. And Murphy, I remember seeing Murphy uh, for the first time when I was out there. And he like, this was uh, against, it was in a regional with, um, with Illinois and Notre Dame and Kevin Biggio was on Notre Dame at that point. Tyler J was uh, was Illinois' closer at that point, the top 10 pick. Cody Sedlock was another first rounder pitching that. And and Murphy might have been the best player on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, he's a big physical catcher. The glove is there. Um, and just the physicality is like 6'3", 220. And there's not as much power as you would expect from that profile. But, like, he knows what he's doing at the plate. And I don't know if like you bring that guy, you know, particularly a catcher, you know, I don't know if you bring him up and plug him right into the lineup. And I don't think this is what the A's are going to be, uh, or are planning to do. And just like have him figure out how to catch at the major league level in three weeks and then toss him into the postseason. But catcher is not like an area, you know, no disrespect, 
um, to Chris Herman or uh, Josh Fagley. Uh, but mm-hmm. this is not an area where they're like swimming in depth. And right. Murphy might be their best catcher right now. So I would like to see him. And maybe this is just like, you know, congratulations on your good minor league season. Come up and wear the uniform for a couple weeks and uh, yeah. we'll talk about it in 2020. But I'd like to see him get some action now because yeah. if he's ready, he could make a difference. He's got good defensive reputation, pretty good minor league framing numbers, but that's a lot to ask of a rookie I to agree. come up yeah. and, and, and catch a, a playoff staff not having worked with those pitchers, not and knowing in any what other they like position. To do. Maybe it's possible, but right. but uh, at catcher, it's it's a tall order. But I would like yeah. to see him given given the opportunity. And maybe you know, and, and that wild card race is is kind of tight right now. So maybe they don't have the opportunity to exper- or they don't have the luxury of experimenting. Maybe you just go with Fagley because he's the the devil you know but Mm -hmm. i i think uh look out for murphy definitely in 2020 because i think he's there's a pretty good shot that that he's the ace everyday catcher by this time next year right so i will stay in the al west and i will mention kyle tucker who is back up with the astros and i'm really fascinated to see what kyle tucker does this is not really a case where you're thinking about playoff impact I am just looking forward to what this tells us, if anything, about Kyle Tucker's outlook with the Astros, because, of course, he has been a a very highly ranked prospect now for four years running, I think, and he still is. He's close to a a top 10 guy even now, and he's coming off a a 30-30 season in AAA which sounds very impressive. If you look at the league numbers, it's in a way not all that impressive because he actually only has a 113 WRC plus despite hitting 34 bombs in 125 games. I find the 30 stolen bases pretty impressive. I didn't think it was that fast. Yeah, that is pretty good. And you don't have juiced bases in AAA the way that you have a juiced ball. But we should come back to that idea, though. (laughs) Well, (laughs) they're doing it in the Atlantic League right now. But yes, I, I am very interested to see where he fits in, if anywhere, with the Astros, because he had three brief call-ups last year, and he didn't hit it all. Of course, that's a a tough assignment to to do what they asked him to do, but he didn't hit the ground running, and then they signed Michael Brantley, which has worked out great, of course, but perhaps could have been interpreted as a sign of lack of faith in Tucker, at least, to take that job and run with it right away. And then, of course, you have Jordan Alvarez, who is mostly a DH, but when he plays the field, he is also a left fielder, as is Tucker. So Brantley signed for next season, so where does Tucker fit in here? I don't really know. And he's going to be 23 in January. And I don't know whether he is eventually a a trade chip or whether they do hold on to him for another year and try to slot him in after Brantley's contract is up or what. But at some point, he has to hit in one of these major league uh, auditions. So I don't think this is a make or break month or anything for him, but I'm sure he would feel a lot better if he hit in this call up. And maybe the Astros would feel a bit better about him, too. I mean, the Astros probably don't make decisions based on four weeks of major league, uh, you know, major league production. Um, Tucker was really bad when he came up last year. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that I think makes it difficult. Like maybe they try to move on from Josh Raddick or something. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. it, or, you know, I was surprised they didn't use Tucker as a, as a trade trip, uh, as a trade chip. Like they yeah. they made a point like we're not um, getting rid of Alvarez or Tucker. Um, I think they. They're like running the risk. Either he's going to be good or they're going to regret having held on to him too long. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm interested to see what he does. I, I think I'm less confident uh, in Tucker. Tucker's ability to be a, an impact big league bat um, 
than maybe the the prospect rankings would uh, would have you indicate. Right. Um, so I'm I'm curious, you know, and I certainly hope he succeeds. But you know, I'm less excited than I am interested. I think mm-hmm. in, in how he performs. So I'm, just briefly, also in the AL West, I should mention Jared Walsh, who's back up with the Angels and is the best two way player in baseball until two way Otani returns. And speaking of players who might do that David Price thing. There are a couple more candidates because we haven't yet seen all of the September call-ups this season. So someone like Jesus Lizardo might be up with the A's throwing to Sean Murphy sometime soon. And he's a a potential October bullpen guy. He's starting in the AAA playoffs right now. So he could come up. The Yankees are trying to do that with Davey Garcia, although his adjustment to the bullpen is not going so smoothly. So the same with AJ Puck and, you know, speaking of Mm -hmm. of, uh, Oakland guys. Yeah, the last... um, yeah, Puck hasn't pitched, I think, in about a week. Um, so we'll see what confidence, if any, they have in him. But he's, I don't know, he might be the most talented arm who comes up this uh, uh, mm-hmm. this September. So the Blue Jays just today brought up uh, a pair of former uh, high draft picks. Anthony Kay, who you might remember as being uh, one of the the pieces in the Marcus Stroman trade, and mm-hmm. former first-round picks uh, TJ Zoik. And, you know, these are this they definitely fall into more interesting than exciting for me, because, like, you look at that lineup, the what they built together with Biggio, with Bo Bichette, with Vlad Guerrero, with with a uh, Lourdes Gurriel, like the offensive core is there. And like th- those guys are all going to take another step forward, I think. But like they are they are ready and that that is set up right now all and it all came together in the in the span of a couple months and just the pitching isn't and mm-hmm. so they've had some success with you know Jacob Wogspack who is a, an undrafted free agent who they got for it was a Phillies trade I don't I actually don't remember who, who went the other way it was somebody completely inconsequential but he's been he's been pretty good for them this year but he's not like the the ace of the next good Blue Jays team. And and I don't think either Kay or Zoik is, but if they're both mid-rotation starters, then you can go out and get that ace in free agency or, or by trade. So how far away they are from contending with this Bichette and uh, Guerrero core, I think will have a lot to do with what we see from these pitchers. You know, not the next month, but the next the next year or so. Uh, mm-hmm. And that'll make a big difference in in the Blue Jays timeline. So this is yeah. just the the sneak peek, uh, not to put too much pressure on them. But yeah, yeah, I'm interested to see how they do. So before we wrap up, I should say that we've been talking mostly about really promising players and top prospects and guys who, as you say, we're getting a, a sneak peek at something that we will see at much longer length, presumably in future seasons. And that's not what I'll miss the most about September call-up season. That's nice, of course, to get that quick look at rookies and just get to dream on them for the next year. And yes, I do like the the David Price type. But what I really appreciate about the September roster season is that it gives guys a chance to be big leaguers who will not have a chance in the future when we're limited to 28-man rosters. And I don't really oppose the switch to 28-man rosters because it can get sort of silly sometimes when... When you do have these giant rosters and you have an enormous number of pitching changes and it slows the game down and it gets kind of tedious and you don't know who anyone is. And that's already a problem with bullpens as big as they are and guys constantly shuffling in and out. I mean, there's someone on every roster at any given time who I couldn't tell you anything about. And of course, that becomes exacerbated at September. But 
I don't really miss it from a, a strategic competitive standpoint because, of course, you play the rest of the season under different circumstances, and it's kind of weird to then expand the rosters massively in a month that often means a lot, and it gives an edge to to certain teams, let's say. But I do miss the fact that it really makes some good stories because there's always someone who is just, you know, sticking it out year after year and is past the age at which you typically get to the big leagues. But it's a heartwarming story and someone finally gets their chance and some long shot dream comes true. And that's nice for everyone involved. It's nice for us. We get to enjoy those stories. It's nice for the players, of course. It's nice for the whole organization, whoever scouted them, whoever signed them, whoever developed them. They all, I think, feel some personal pride when that guy finally makes it. So I'm a little sorry to lose that aspect of it. It's, and, you know, baseball's a little unique because no other sport really does this or, you know, certainly doesn't expand its rosters to this extent uh, at the end of the regular season. And there's no, like, you know, for, for teams that, uh, that are out of it, there is an, an aspect of like, you know, playing the walk-ons, like you said, uh, you know, on, on a little bit more of a macro level, it does give you nice stories or, you know, sometimes those players come up and, and surprise and end up winning, you know, a career. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just one other, I think that the going to the 26 to 28, uh, as, uh, as they're going to do it next year, um, it's more suitable, I think for modern baseball, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, a more, more purposeful, efficient game than it was maybe even 10 or 15 years ago. And, you know, I, this is, this is going to make me sound cranky, but I've said it, I've said some version of this point a million times. I th- we might be a little worse off uh, that baseball is more efficient and and run uh, run better than it was. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm going to miss a little bit of the the sloppy weirdness that that the 40 man roster um, yeah. brings you. Well, so. if you give modern managers more players, they will use them. <laughs> so yeah, and it, you know it's just going to be pinch runner after. Uh, after pitching change, after pitching right. change, after pitching change, like uh, yeah, I rec- yeah, I say that recognizing that we can't put the genie back in the bottle, and mm-hmm. if we don't, you know, the genie's going to make thirteen mid inning pitching changes every single game. <laughs> right. So yeah. this is nece- I, I, maybe not necessary, but I think it'll be a net positive. But yeah, I I think you're exactly right, not just for the prospects, but for the you know Adam Greenberg, for instance, doesn't yeah, happen right. in yeah. You look you back know? through baseball history, there are a lot of guys who only ever played in September, and it's nice that they had that chance, and now their equivalents will not have that chance. And it's not just making the big leagues and getting your big league baseball reference page, but also you make big league money for a month, which is mm-hmm. not nothing for someone who's making minor league salary. So that's sort of a a loss and something that I will miss. Although on the whole, I think it's probably a a neutral to positive change. I think we need to be more okay just societally with being ambivalent about Uh stuff. Like, you know, we don't have to have a a take on this necessarily. We're like saying that, you know, there's a, this is, there are good things about this and there are bad things about this. And, you know, I I hope I will appreciate, I hope the good outweighs the bad going forward. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's time, but Man, you know, like the the snows of yesteryear or whatever, um, whatever the the saying is. All right, mm-hmm. all right. So, I hope we get this wistful again next week. But I gotta let you go because we got we're recording this one backwards, so we got other segments to do. So, all right, I'll talk to you next week.
That will just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks, as always, uh, to Zach and Ben for joining me today. Thanks also to my special guest, Jacob Pomeranke of Sabre. You can find his work on the Black Sox and on other topics at Sabre.org. Uh, among the things uh, you'll find there is the Eight Myths Out page we talked about earlier and all of the work of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee, as well as a link to register for the Black Sox Scandal Centennial Symposium this September 28 in Chicago. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter at Buck Weaver. Thanks to Shoeless Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Justin Verlander, Eddie Seacott, and Sean Murphy for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Today's episode is brought to you by Floor and Decor. Floor and Decor is where the pros go for tile, wood, stone, and installation materials. But the best part about Floor and Decor is their pro services and loyalty reward program. From the dedicated pro hotline to the exclusive pro app, your Floor and Decor team is just a touch away. Visit floorandecor.com to find the location nearest to you.